0: Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting, but this is The Most Interesting People I Know, conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Malika Jabali. Malika is an attorney, activist, and writer based in New York. She's a contributing writer to Essence Magazine and has had her work published in Current Affairs, Jacobin, The Intercept, The Root, and elsewhere. She's written on many topics, including police shootings, white nationalism, black radicalism, and hip-hop. She has also done excellent reporting on the dramatic declines in black voter turnout in Milwaukee during the 2016 election. Malaika makes a persuasive case that these declines help explain Hillary's loss. The real reason for this drop are at odds with the narrative advanced by the Clinton campaign and Democratic establishment. They also chart a path forward for 2020. In addition to this reporting, we discuss how the DNC fails to learn from its mistakes, the corrosive impact of wealth in politics and music, Bernie and race, Bonnaroo, Political Labels, Black Panther Fred Hampton, Why Joe Biden Should Stick to Eating Ice Cream, and The Mysterious Deaths of Ferguson Protest Organizers. I should note that this episode was recorded before Joe Biden declared his candidacy. Malika wrote a Jacobin piece about Biden that is linked in the show notes. I hope you enjoy the show. Malika, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So I just want to start with uh, how you got into writing. Can you just tell that story?
1: Uh, There are a couple of versions. I'll give you the shorter one. And it was that I needed a creative outlet while I was in law school. I planned on being Beyonce's background dancer. Shout out to Homecoming. The album is great if you haven't heard it, everyone. And I did not do well at like one of the dance auditions that I had on the last ones that I did. And I said, okay, I I need to do something else.
0: So so you were like in the process. You were really. I was
1: like I trained. I had done like I had a wide like background in dance, um, all types from modern to jazz, et cetera. And I knew that I liked to write, but I never imagined that I would do it in any sort of professional capacity. So after that, I was like, I need a less expensive hobby. And I started writing and I knew I always wanted to do something political. I studied political science in undergrad, but I focused on kind of African-American political science and political issues. And it just kind of worked out. People accepted it. You know, unlike with my dance auditions, I didn't get constant rejection. You get a a lot of rejection, which prepared me for the rejection. But I got some, you know, yeses and was like encouraged to keep doing it. So I did it.
0: Cool. What was your first like big piece that kind of got opened the door for the others?
1: Uh, A big one, I would say, I don't know. I mean, I think especially when you're freelancing, you have a whole whole other career. Mm -hmm. It's hard to tell what leads to what. Um, the one that I was really excited about that was like a long form narrative was something on Southern hip hop. So it was culture had nothing to do with politics, which is what I've been doing a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was like Solange's website for St. Heron. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've, been, I've had a long game with Beyonce. Here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so she like retweeted a lot of my passages on Twitter. So that was the first time like someone well-known kind of responded to something that I wrote.
0: That's cool. She, yeah, she
1: didn't cite me. She acted like it was something that she wrote, but whatever. I <laughs> oh, still- Oh, man.
0: You got to tag people. It just gets I better. I know. I was
1: like, hey, girl, thanks. I did this. Anyway, um, but yeah, that was kind of the first thing where, where people noticed. And then- Maybe polit—I I don't know—and then politically, it's it's hard to tell like where that kind of blew up.
0: Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I first discovered you through Current Affairs, like many of the guests that I've I've had. Um, you wrote a piece called "The Color of Economic Anxiety." Yeah, um, we'll get into that a little bit later, but um, actually, let's let's just talk about it now. Like, sure. What, what's the thesis of that piece, and then what did you do to prepare for it or write it?
1: We often think about the Midwest as these blue-collar white rust belt voters or workers and we tend to not think about the variety of ethnicities and religious backgrounds that are based in the midwest and that was also kind of stemming from my own ignorance so i wanted to tell a story about economic anxiety from the lens of black vo- black workers who have had generations of, of families in this region kind of stemming back from the great migration and What I discovered through that is not only do you have this like strong, progressive, sometimes a radical base of black people who are in the Midwest, but they also vote differently Mm. than other black people might throughout, you know, what we consider the democratic firewall, like the South, for instance. And there is a very distinct kind of economic crisis that's happening for black people in the Midwest. So I wanted to see what those connections were with how they voted in the same way that we think about how white Trump voters with economic anxiety are making their political decisions.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I think like when you say economic anxiety in the context of the 2016 election, to some people it's almost a dog whistle for like excusing white racism, Um, which is kind of crazy to me because if you look at the numbers, uh, people experiencing economic anxiety, whether we define it as like unable to you know afford a $500, you know, unexpected fee um, or like being in debt or whatever, like are disproportionately people of color.
1: Right. And when you look at the Midwest in particular, what stood out to me and I'll say Milwaukee, because that's where I've been concentrating my work Mm -hmm. in 1970, kind of the height of the manufacturing industry, 54% of black men were employed in manufacturing versus 20% of white men in Milwaukee. Mm. So we were disproportionately engaged. By we, I mean Black men, Black people, mm-hmm. were disproportionately hired in this sector, employed in this industry. So if you can take that a step further and say, well, when we have deindustrialization, when we have offshoring, when we no longer have these jobs, who was that impacting the most? And it was concentrated in Black communities. So when we lost that, when we lost that kind of economic stability with people with union jobs and you know benefits with this labor sector, You're going to end up with a lot of families who are reeling from an economic crisis, and it's an economic crisis that's been ongoing for 40 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so what made you choose Milwaukee uh, when you were focusing on this piece? Because that's really what it's about. Mm -hmm. But it's it's telling a larger story,
1: Exactly. It's telling a larger story of the Midwest, but I focused on Milwaukee, A, because of the data. The data was leading me there. Mm -hmm. I noticed it was kind of footnoted in various articles, so people really weren't kind of getting into the juicy details or the nuances or talking to people. Uh, There were a couple of articles about it kind of in the mainstream press. Um, One that I can recall explicitly was The New York Times. They did a piece on it. And I'm also an organizer. So I work in the Eastern New York community organizing Black, just working class, everyday people to get involved in electoral politics. And in 2016, after the election, we said, how is this going to impact us? Let's think critically about it. Let's be strategic about it. And let's see if we can align with some elected officials who can do something about this Trump presidency. And it was through that. It was literally a presentation. We had a town hall meeting and I was doing research to analyze the election. I said, well, Milwaukee had the steepest, you know, decline in black voter turnout in its recorded history. What Mm -hmm. is that about? Um, and I noticed that these sort of swings were happening in other Midwestern states, but I did not know much about Milwaukee. So the first thing was the data that was pointing me to the Midwest as a larger region. But then out of just kind of curiosity, I said, well, what is it what what more is there to learn about this city? So the more I dug, the more fascinating it became and that became the focus.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I don't know if you recall this, the stats off the top of your head, but like you're painting a picture of just Kind of urban despair yeah. uh, to the greatest degree imaginable in like an American city, where you had like very high rates of employment among yeah. like middle middle uh, age black men dropping to like what do you remember the numbers?
1: Yeah, so it was about uh, I want to say seventy percent in their prime working years. So that's eighteen to fifty four in nineteen seventy. Were employed. Were employed. Mm-hmm. That dropped to about between 40 to 50%. So it's I think it's 47%. It was less than half of black men in 2010 were employed versus about 70% in 1970.
0: And so where where are those people who aren't working?
1: You can Basically, look at sociologists and say and look at their research. Um, I'm not sure how they count the incarcerated population, but a mm-hmm. lot of people would say that they replace a prison policy, a jobs policy with a prison policy. Yeah. Because half of black men are incarcerated in Milwaukee and it's the steepest incarceration rate in the country. Um, there are a number of gig jobs within the gig economy. So these are like part-time jobs that aren't paying very well. There was a gentleman that I interviewed, Wendell Harris, who had one of those jobs with a company called A.O. Smith. It was kind of the central economic engine for uh, one distinct community in Milwaukee. He was able to retire from there. But right now, in addition to, I guess, volunteering as a school board member, he also rides drives for Lyft. Hmm. So here's a man who, you know, had all these benefits and was able to support his family. Where now, if he were to have a family, he's he's older. But if you were to have a family and needed to support them, there isn't that much that's available there right now.
0: Yeah, and and so I guess like the common story we saw after 2016 in a lot of mainstream press is like the Midwest had been hollowed out by deindustrialization, you know, automation or like offshoring of of good jobs, the good mm-hmm. benefits, like union density declined, I mean, people like. Turn to Trump as you know this guy who's going to break break up the system that's like kind of fucked them over. Um, but you, you paint like a different picture in this in this piece.
1: Yeah, to me, the story of 2016 is a story of non-voters. Hmm. I think we can always look to uh, Trump's bigotry and sexism and um, just basically yeah, the fascist regime that he promotes. I think can never be underscored but at or you know under rated yeah um but what we barely talk about is the fact that like i mentioned before milwaukee had the steepest black voter turnout decline in this black voter turnout in its history
0: and what's the range on that is it like so it was from 2018? 70
1: so 76 uh 6 in 2012 mm. when obama uh ran dropped to about 47 percent. wow so less than half wow of the state's Black population came out to vote mm. in 2016. And you can apply those statistics in you know, other states in the Midwest. So it also dropped in Michigan, and it also dropped in Pennsylvania and in Florida. Yeah, The Democratic base lost a large chunk of their voters. And it wasn't just Black voters. It was also progressive white voters. Most of those people stayed home. It yeah. wasn't that they defected and went to the Republican Party. They just said, neither of these options are great. I'm staying home. If you look at some of the data that's out there about voter suppression or people's interests in, you know the candidates, one study from the University of Wisconsin-Madison said that about 40 percent of people said that they either weren't interested or did not like the candidates, and that's mm-hmm. why they stayed home. Things that would indicate voter suppression, like the, the lines are too long or there was some issue with their voter ID, amounted to about 6 percent. So yeah. this is 40 percent versus 6 percent. Then the census also did a study, something that they do every election cycle when there's a general presidential election, and it found kind of similar numbers. So about forty percent of people either were not interested or said that this their vote would not matter in this election.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that, that was so astonishing to me because I heard about voter suppression and I thought that was like a pretty powerful explanation for a lot of like Democrats' failures in like a lot of states that are controlled by Republican governors mm-hmm. and legislatures. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it varies state by state.
1: Yeah. And
0: like Stacey Abrams election in Absolutely. Uh, Georgia a probably clear was example. You know, tipped yeah. by that. I mean,
1: so I would be cautious about applying any of this to any other state. I mm-hmm. think Wisconsin has very a very unique history and very unique political conditions that differ from the rest of this, the country. So I'm from Georgia. I've experienced voter suppression. I've seen it. Uh, with my own eyes i was adamant against the voter suppression that was happening against Stacey abrams but wisconsin is a little bit unique in the sense that it has a very strong progressive labor history progressive politics in general um i could get into a a whole thing with that but but i'll spare you on on that because i'm a little bit of a history nerd but rural the bottom line is that rural white voters in wisconsin are going to be a little bit different from rural white voters in georgia Mm. so they are a little bit more inclined to support somebody like a Bernie Sanders who advocates for socialism because Wisconsin had a bevy of socialist mayors. It was one of it's always been one of the most progressive states in the country. So as opposed to them like kind of flipping over to Trump, many of them would stay home because he is too radical for them. Mm. When you look at the results of 2012 for instance between Barack Obama and actually 2008 between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton It had one of the smallest margins of kind of like white voters and black voters voting for Barack Obama. You didn't see that throughout the country. So more white people were supporting Barack Obama in Wisconsin than almost anywhere else. Interesting. So voter suppression is going to be like always a major issue as long as we have marginalized people in this country. But we have to be careful about understanding the nuances of each state and their voting patterns.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, You wrote another piece for The Intercept about how Hillary Clinton doesn't understand or at least is like misrepresenting what happened in 2016. Um, And in that case, I think like she used voter suppression as sort of like a get out of jail free card. Um, Can you speak to what she said and like why she was wrong?
1: Yeah, uh, she it's, it's a little bit convoluted. And I think she was trying to say it carefully enough so she would still cover her bases. But I think she said something along the lines of She started off her paragraph saying that the Voting Rights Act was gutted and we have to be careful about that because it affects the vote. Mm -hmm. It affected me in Wisconsin. It affected, you know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. So she tried to create this sort of symmetry between what happened with her in 2016 and what happened with Stacey Abrams in 2018. Yeah. And my argument in uh, The Intercept is that her analysis couldn't be further from the truth. Because, A, the Voting Rights Act, this is going to be a little bit technical. I am a lawyer, yeah. so it's, it's a little annoying. <laughs> but the Voting Rights Act section that she's talking about, Section 5, which was gutted, has the pre pre-clearance requirements, which establishes how states are supposed to uh, submit their plans, their mm-hmm. redistricting plans to the Justice Department. So they have like a history of discrimination in their voting practices, and they have to tell the, tell the Justice Department how they're fixing that. Wisconsin was not subject to one of those plans, so the the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, Section Five, did not affect Wisconsin voters because they weren't a part of that. Yeah. A in the Shelby Beholder decision, and B the voting rights, the voting suppression laws that they put into place happened in 2011. So that was several years before 2016. Meaning, if Democratic, you know, centrist and establishment. Elected officials cared so greatly about black voters being suppressed, they had years upon years to grassroots, to do some grassroots activism, to campaign there, to get out the vote and to engage those voters. And they did not. And Mm -hmm. they knew it was coming. Mind you, the law did not even come into effect until 2016. So they had ample time to prepare themselves. So in my view, if you are so passionate about voter suppression that you're talking about it, you know, with Black voters at this huge historic event, then you would have invested some time and resources in those voters from the get-go before it was time for you to run for office. And even when it was time for you to run for office, you still didn't engage those voters. In 2016, Hillary Clinton did not go to the state when she was the Democratic primary candidate. This is just a few months after they're dealing with like a huge kind of uh, some civil unrest Mm -hmm. in the city. She never stepped foot in the state and her campaign operations were pretty paltry compared to, uh, compared to the previous democratic primary uh, with Barack Obama.
0: Yeah. I I think there was a Michelle Wolf joke from the correspondence center that like hit pretty hard, like about, Oh, I didn't know the Russians didn't like Hillary Clinton campaign in Wisconsin. Um, And I think it just kind of belies this whole thing of like, we don't have to get into Russiagate, but you know Hillary Clinton and mainstream Democrats are looking for every reason to excuse their shocking uh, and frankly embarrassing defeat mm-hmm. at the hands of a like a totally incompetent uh, buffoon, buffoon, and you know they're going to come up with explanations that require you to not look too much into the details um, because the real explanations are just like such a shocking repudiation of like everything that they've stood for for you know decades
1: absolutely and it makes them very uncomfortable and the idea of the piece was not to relitigate 2016 it was to say what are the same kind of tropes that the democratic party is repeating and that seems to be what this the leadership of the democratic party is taking up as their mantle instead Mm -hmm. of talking about economic anxiety in the midwest and even though the Democratic National Convention is going to be in Milwaukee. We haven't heard them engage like black voters or engage this idea of economic anxiety for people of color in the region. Not once yet. It's still voter suppression. It's still Russia. It's still this Mellow Report. All these other issues. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, so I, I forgot that the D M C conference will be in Milwaukee. So right. It's actually, I'm sure your piece will get a second life as that's happening.
1: Yes. Yes. And and again, I think this is if people were paying attention, then they would have seen the writing on the wall. So that piece, again, was also to me about saying that the Democrats are just out of touch and out of step with what the base of their party is experiencing. Yeah. I mean, what's astonishing
0: to me is that uh, the Democratic National Committee has... Very strong incentives. Well, maybe they don't actually, but let's assume (laughs) they want to win, you know, let's assume they want to win elections. Um, it seems like, and let's assume they also want to preserve Hillary Clinton's image of herself in the eyes of like the base, um, You'd think they'd allow her to say things that are not true, uh, to like kind of excuse her own performance, but then internally like do a lot of soul searching, look at the data. I mean, you didn't have access to any privileged information, right? You just use like academic research. Literally
1: just like the census. Just go on, (laughs) go online. It's all free. And
0: and you'd think that like, you know, they would actually really dig into like the real reasons why they lost. And I think you make a very compelling case in in The Color of Economic Anxiety and, and some of the other pieces you've written that the way for Democrats to win is to energize voters who would be their base but are just too disaffected to even vote rather than focusing on this like proverbial, you know, white middle class like suburbanite in Long Island that like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are courting and, and thinking about all their decisions through through the, that person's eyes. Right. Um, but, I mean, it seems like they either have incompetent consultants or strategists or their donor base just like won't allow them to use the kind of messaging and policies that would actually appeal to those people. Um, do you have any like, explanations as to like why they're not, they don't seem to be learning their lesson.
1: I think it's a combination of what you said and also an unwillingness because they're also in the elite and Nancy Pelosi, I don't know how much money she makes, but I think she's one of the top like
0: she's worth a congresswoman. A yeah. yeah.
1: With her, you know, one of the highest net worth in Congress. And I think that's really what it comes down to. I think it's them not, uh, Having a ground game of activists and organizers who are a part of their network, I think it's not wanting to offend uh, the people who are going to be funding their campaigns. And I think it's not wanting to accept something that will, it will dip into their own, you know, well-being if they have to start thinking about, I might have to give up a little bit more. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's like, yeah, what are the incentives that really are motivating uh-huh. your decision making? And I mean, there's a theory I've seen mostly from the left and like I haven't uh-huh. dug into it in too much detail that like the Democrats don't really want to win. Like they they want to keep getting elected. They want to keep pleasing donors. Mm-hmm. Um, but winning forces them to actually do, do things
1: <laughs> to govern, and
0: be held accountable for it. And like the Republicans have actually kind of had this challenge of like. You spend eight years railing against Obamacare and saying you're going to fix healthcare, and then you get in and you're like the the dog that caught the car, and you've got to
1: yeah, uh, actually something. do something now. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but I mean, the way that they're acting, it's it's not very uh, encouraging that yeah. they're looking for winning strategies. Yeah, and I would say encouraging for you know the average Democratic voter. Like I vote for Democrats, especially in local elections. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I've definitely abstained from some elections and done write-in votes. I would never vote for a conservative, but I, I'm coming from kind of a a black radical like background. Mm -hmm. Both of my parents were activists. I've surrounded myself with black radical activists all my life. So to me, it's about drumming up a, a a base. Of just kind of grassroots thinkers and radical um, activists to be able to always have this community and a strategy, whatever is happening in electoral politics, especially federally, mm-hmm. because we know that for the most part they don't try and speak to Black voters with sub- with substantive issues. So I think it's important for Black women like me, Black you know, Black people across the spectrum to be able to empower their communities and to build, you know, organizations outside of that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen with the new class in Congress, like the power of uh, elected official who's willing to sit down with activists and actually be like, what what are you trying to do? How can I help? Right. Um, I mean, AOC joining the Sunrise Movement's mm-hmm. occupation of Pelosi's office, like kicked off the Green New Deal, as we know, it, and the conversation around it. And like, that's not to discredit any of the work that was already done, like to make that possible. Um, but you know, you just, I can't see Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer having a conversation with activists, um, and having it not come across like uh Dianne Feinstein talking to the children who like protested in her office. And like, these people are just not comfortable speaking to somebody, somebody like you, who's going to be like pushing them on, on these issues. And is not just like a big money donor who is going to like whisper in the ear and tell them what to do.
1: Right. I mean, and I, I have no idea what, um, what it's like for a, a legislator being in Congress. Um, I work in, um, local, like the local legislative politics in New York city. So I'm sure you can't really compare it at all, but you are constantly meeting with lobbyists. You're meeting with people who are wine and dining you Giving you a different lifestyle that you may have, you know, never been exposed to before, and I think a lot of people get seduced by that. Yeah. Um, Barack Obama actually talked about this. I think it was in Audacity of Hope. I can't recall one of his autobiographies where he's saying that he felt himself like slipping away from kind of this grassroots ethos that he had kind of built up for himself, mm. um, and that really does take a toll on your politics.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, beyond politics, this is like the musician who wrote like music that really spoke to people and like it was uh, gritty and real. And then they became rich and famous and like they don't, they're not as good anymore. Yeah.
1: Do you have anybody in mind or? Uh, I mean,
0: Eminem, (laughs) like, I think, you know, he still tries to call back to that. And, but like, he's been worth hundreds of millions of dollars for like over like a decade now. I I don't know the exact numbers. Yeah. Um, And so much of his music is rooted in like, you know, the deprivation that they grew up with and like this is probably particularly true in like in hip hop more broadly Um, this is something I don't know that much about I'm Mm. sure you could talk my ear off about it
1: yeah maybe not I mean I just know that I liked Kanye and now Kanye's a mess oh yeah uh,
0: yeah. is that who you you thought I was talking about
1: no no (laughs) not him specifically I just wanted to be messy
0: yeah hey I mean if Eminem like picks this up and then uh, tweets tweets about it yeah that would be great (laughs) starts
1: with like a subtweet war sure let's do it that'd be awesome (laughs)
0: Eminem I enjoyed your show at Bonnaroo I could have done without the massive explosions that sounded like a bomb going off
1: oh Uh, that's not great (laughs)
0: yeah not great i was there for it and like it was still shocking
1: what year was this this
0: is this past year.
1: okay i've Um, been wanting to go to bonnaroo but it's like oh it it is so much fun it sounds like a like fun and it also sounds like a mess
0: i mean so this past year it it there's a huge thunderstorm and uh it was like some of the worst rain i've ever seen we're Mm -hmm. all huddling it's like a hundred of us under this like kind of barn tent type thing And the person working there just starts yelling, this is not a stable structure. Go back to your cars. (laughs) And it just felt like the apocalypse. And then everyone's like, why don't you go back to your car? Like (laughs) (laughs) You're staying here. I'm not leaving. Um, And then... Uh, Mickey Echo did a set and came out into the mud and, like, stood in the middle of like a okay. hundred or so people that actually made it out and it was saying, uh, Stay, which he wrote with Rihanna. Um, okay. Beautiful song. And yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, yeah. Bonneru is a beautiful mess. Um,
1: yeah, there you go.
0: You should definitely check it out.
1: Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it was on my bucket list at one point in life. Yeah. Now, I don't
0: know. Never too old. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, back to politics.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> So, I guess like we 've been dancing around it, but all this like has implications for twenty twenty um, and you know, I did some reading today about like Bernie and his like the narrative that Bernie has like an issue around race um and like can 't get support from that. Um, there was a New York Times article like last week that said that um it was about the stop Bernie uh, coalition that 's building the Democratic party, mm. and so this is like something Brock and a few other like Obama campaign people who are, like, organizing donors and trying to, like, find a way to stop Bernie. And in the article, there's, like, a, a few lines that stuck out. One was, like, mainstream Democrats over their, like, fancy cocktails and something else. And it's, like, what mainstream are you talking about here? Um, the other piece that was more substantive was it said something about, like, Bernie's uh, inability to appeal to uh, people of color is, like, going to pose a big problem for him in 2020. Mm-hmm. But, like, this is after quite a few polls had come out that Bernie is, like, by far the front runner of declared candidates, and actually the front runner among you know black voters as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it seems like you know the software update hasn't reached the New York Times yet. There is like going to this narrative that you know yeah. may have existed in twenty sixteen, and I looked into twenty sixteen, and like you know he did only get like twenty percent of the black vote across the entire primary. Um, so let me actually ask a different question. Then we'll get into twenty twenty. But
1: mm-hmm. did you
0: support anybody in the twenty sixteen primary?
1: If I supported anybody, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Was it Bernie? Mm-hmm. And, and what was that experience like for you? And like, what did you think of the criticisms at the time of like Bernie not reaching out to the black community?
1: I think there are a couple of arguments going on. I think one is a matter of outreach. And the other is whether he has certain um, familiarity with the intersections of race and class mm. enough. Yeah to, I think, pull Black voters um, or for them to trust that he's genuine in his concern about some of these um, socioeconomic issues. So as far as outreach, I have not studied that that much. Um, my experience in 2016 is that from going to his rallies and that you know, I'm saying this as somebody who's a journalist, but who's also a human being who Mm -hmm. votes and does things and is involved in political life. So we typically like don't, you know, we're not um, this open about like how our our voting choices matter and, and what we're doing. But, you know, I'll talk about it here. Yeah. And observing that and also volunteering for his campaign. I saw more Black people involved than I expected in Brooklyn. I don't Mm. know what it's like, you know, in Louisiana. I can't say what it's like in California. But I saw more Black people in my sphere who were supportive than the media would have told me otherwise. Um, But I don't know how much stock we should put into that. (laughs) You know, I deal with a lot of people who are involved in politics who... Um, work on these issues on a regular basis and they're looking at these policy things. So my experience is like, I think one thing that we can consider, but I don't I don't think it's necessarily fair to apply it to black people across yeah. the board, seeing as, you know, how the, the results turned out.
0: Yeah. Um, he had like an all-white campaign staff, I think, in 2016, um, at least according to the press that I read. Mm-hmm. But that's very different now.
1: Um, right. It is. And so, With outreach, I'm not, I can't, you know, I can't speak to that too much, but I will say that there's always room for improvement when it comes to reaching out to uh, the Democratic base Mm -hmm. and black people in the Democratic base, because I actually had some reservations about, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders this time around, because those things didn't really seem to change very much in terms of how he was speaking about some of these issues where, There was still almost this default to whiteness when we think about, you know, the working class and Mm -hmm. who he's appealing in the Midwest. There's still this kind of boxing in or compartmentalization of economic issues and race issues that I've observed um, when he's talking about some of these things, though I have seen it increase so how you package it, how you package racism, your ability to be able to say that something if something is racist to call it racist mm-hmm. is going to be important for black people. Yeah. Like I think there was this whole incident. Oh, I don't remember what. He said something about he doesn't think that people who didn't want to vote for Barack Obama are necessarily racist or well, something. Like
0: it was like white they voters who don't want to vote for a black candidate like aren't necessarily racist, I yeah. think was a quote. Like or something being uncomfortable voting for a
1: black person isn't necessarily racist. And so yeah. he was hedging on that. And yeah. people pick up on that. Yeah. Or if you respond to a reparations question and say no, mm-hmm. but then you're also asking, well, what does it mean? What does reparations yeah. mean? Why? Why is the instinct to say no if yeah. you're still asking questions about what people mean by it? Yeah. So those things are going to resonate with people. Um, I think he's going to be a front runner because he a has re- name recognition and he is doing all these other universal programs that will benefit us. Mm-hmm. But that should not be kind of the default talking point. Yes, he's doing these things, but you have to know how to engage people. People yeah. don't vote just for policies; they vote for your vision, they vote for your sincerity. They vote for how much they, they feel that they can rely on you and trust you to fight for these things for people of all races. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I guess I think that vision, sincerity, uh, the rhetoric, like all that matters from a engaging the voter base standpoint and like for, you know, just helping people tell stories about who they are. And as like a candidate and a president, you have to like do those things. But I guess like the case the strong case to be made from like a Bernie supporter uh, for like why he's the best candidate for black people specifically would be that like universal programs will disproportionately help people who are like, you know, people of color Um, criminal justice reform will disproportionately help like black and Brown people in in the United States. And like Bernie's probably going to be the most radical on, on those issues. And so like from a policy standpoint, how he talks about things, which like I would share your, you know, uh, reservations about like, that, that line in particular that we just talked about, like, if that's not racism, like, or at least, yeah, maybe they're not racist themselves, but like if that's not a racist act, like, what, what really is? Mm-hmm. Um, but from a policy standpoint, like, I don't know if I see the connection. And like on reparations, you know, Bernie will say, I don't support reparations, but I support X, Y, and Z, which like, will like disproportionately help, you know, uh, black people, but then other candidates say, I do support reparations, but they actually support some, like, milquetoast thing that, like, isn't reparations, as anybody would understand it. Mm-hmm. And their other programs aren't nearly as helpful for, for poor people and black people. Like, then, I, I don't know, I'd, I'd rather have the unbranded, like, policies that help more people.
1: I think people who, like me, who mm-hmm. look at politics every day, were involved in policy, like, that's my job. We'll see those distinctions, but when you're reaching out to the average voter, how you say things matter. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't have kind of this um, these comparisons to make between somebody like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. When he talks about like the working class, when he talks about class oppression, there's a passion behind that. When mm-hmm. he's talking about foreign policy and he's talking about, you know, Israel being having a racist regime, people feel that. Yeah. People want to feel it when you're talking about race too. Yeah. And yes. that's going to be important. So for folks who are aware of these uh, policy distinctions, they will have reservations, but they might still vote. Yeah. But when you're trying trying to re- reach people on the margins, the ones who are non-voters, the ones mm-hmm. who sit home when you know uh, Hillary uh, Clinton and Donald Trump aren't speaking to them, that's who you have to reach. You have to reach those people who can tilt an election because there's a difference between, you know, twenty thousand votes or forty thousand votes in a state. I think Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin by twenty two thousand votes. Yeah. So no one's going to be peering into, you know, all of your other substantive policies. If on the face of it, your very first answer to it, something is like, no, nope. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nope, I don't believe it. Yeah. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's a tone. Um, and that's what politics is about. Unfortunately, it's not just about policy. Otherwise, it would just be called policy. It's yeah. politics. <laughs> you have to reach people. You have to campaign. Yeah. You have to win people over.
0: That makes uh, that makes sense. Um, who of the 2020 candidates do you think is speaking well about this?
1: Um, I... To be quite honest with you, even though this, you know, we're talking about politics, I have not gotten into much of the rhetoric of the candidates because I've been focusing on kind of these black economic anxiety issues. Mm -hmm. Um, From what I can tell, I think Elizabeth Warren has done a better job about these intersections of identity Mm -hmm. and class. Um, She gave like a really like warm example of her being, you know, a young woman and seeing her mom, for instance, like working cuz i think her dad lost her job and that kind of conversation resonates very well with people mm-hmm. her talking about kind of black maternal health there's a there's a sort of warmth that <laughs> that she applies to how she thinks about um class and race that that i think resonates more everybody else if honestly if the conversation is not about bernie sanders or elizabeth warren i think it's pretty fruitless yeah because whenever i hear you know a cory or uh um julia castro talk about this stuff i'm like i i don't it's to me it's, it's disingenuous so mm. i can't even it doesn't resonate with me
0: yeah yeah i mean i think yeah i've been very impressed with uh, warren's candidacy so far and on a policy front she's just like generating like a ton of really great ideas um mm-hmm. it's it's funny like you're describing her like t- as talking about this as warm, and that's not usually uh, an adjective that people associate with her. I think like they see her as like super smart and like maybe like a bit removed, but she's also like fiery and
1: yeah, she's and a policy wonk. But when it comes to how I've heard her talk about some of these race issues, there's a little bit more nuance involved.
0: Interesting, um, and so I guess like Cory Booker to-, to listeners who are like thoroughly up the left they probably don't like Cory Booker and they probably have like a bunch of reasons why, but to somebody who like doesn't know much about him or kind of just knows his persona, like why do you find him disingenuous on these issues?
1: I think it's just looking at a, it's the way that he talks about things. So he's speaking the same language that he spoke in 2004. I remember seeing him at a democratic convention. I think it was in Philadelphia. It was the first time that I had a chance to vote and he was incorporating some of the messaging that we've heard from centrist Democrats. It was like, we have to love and love heals, not hate. Yeah. We are so far gone past that. It's <laughs> like 15 years. Why are you using the same rhetoric? Yeah, There is a class war going on. So people <laughs> are not buying that. Like that alone right there, I think, turns a lot of people off. Mm-hmm. When you're dealing with you know, a foreclosure crisis. So you have 2004- and then 2008 is when you've seen like the decimation of like black people's wealth, black yeah. people's homeownership rates. And if you're still talking about love and kindness and reaching across the aisle, you have not learned any lessons from the Great Recession, from, you know, how black people have been targeted, from the the wealth disparities that we have been seeing just, you know, magnify. Um, so, yeah, folks aren't aren't going to buy that.
0: Yeah. I mean, so I guess like, I'll try and make the case for, for why he might be appealing. I, I don't personally support him, but... Um, was
1: a question why he was appealing? Because <laughs> that's how much I don't think he's appealing, that's where I turned.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, some people might find that refreshing. There's people that like civility politics. And yeah. it's like, I think we'd probably agree that we don't support civility politics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like he... he did seem to he did some like pretty admirable things as like mayor of Newark and like kind of put his money where his mouth is like doing hunger strikes and um you know he like saved somebody from like a burning building like he seems like a decent human being and, and at least like isn't it'd be way creepier if he's talking about like peace and love and has like some like crazy I don't know like you know horrible thing in his past that mm-hmm. gets uncovered uh, but I, I feel like that won't happen. Um, But I guess like, yeah, his ties to pharma um, and his vote on like a particular bill, I think turned a lot of people on the left off and like support for charter schools and like some meatier things as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, those are the main policy things that I think of when I think about Cory Booker. Um, I don't, I haven't like studied him enough to know what else there is, but I just get the general sense, and I'm sure his foreign policy is not great. I get the general sense though, that he's going to do corporate bidding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like really the biggest divider is comes down to like capitalism. Like, are you pro capitalism? Are you skeptic or anti capitalist? Um, right. And like Elizabeth Warren has said weird things about being a capitalist to her bones, but she's at least like suggesting policies that would really change yeah, the balance of power um, yeah. between you know, wealthy people and everybody else.
1: Right. I mean, my first kind of. Um, Not encounter, but the first time that I became aware of Elizabeth Warren was when she was featured in Michael Moore's documentary Capitalism, Mm. and that's a pretty like anti-capitalist film, as you can imagine, with Michael Moore. And she was really kind of going into the details of like bankruptcy issues and um, investment banks. And so I always thought of her as progressive, and she didn't seem particularly capitalist. But if that's what she wants to call herself, then okay. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it's funny because labels like some people are like, oh, you know, I support. Bernie because he says he's a socialist or like, I don't support him because of that. And I, I don't know, these labels are, are tricky. Um, you know, when I decided to identify as like a democratic socialist, uh, it was sort of, it's a word that turns people off. And I find that I can talk to most people that I know about like single payer healthcare um, or like universal programs that are of the socialist, you know, strain and they, they're on board with it and they like the idea of, you know regulating businesses and like a Green New Deal and or at least in principle. Mm-hmm. But then you use the word socialist and they like shut down. They go, mm-hmm. oh, it failed. It's failed everywhere. It's been tried. Or like, um, you know, people are going to go to the gulags and, you know, and just like all these silly things, which, I mean, you have to reckon with because people have done bad things in the name of socialism um, and in the name of like pretty much every other major ideology. But I almost wonder if like the labeling matters a lot less than, you know, we, we might think.
1: Yeah, I think. I don't really talk about, you know, the fact that I'm socialist. I remember the first time I kind of talked about it publicly, I was in a classroom in grad school and we didn't talk much about like structural problems. It was at the School of Social Work at Columbia University Mm -hmm. and with all of the kind of social welfare policies that we're talking about and the uh, populations that we you know, deal with, which is usually low income people of color, communities of color. No one wanted to talk about systemic failure. It was no. always about looking at sort of therapy and psych- psychological issues um, to address on a very micro level. So, I raised this in class once and I said, Well, I don't know how we even got on this subject, but I mm-hmm. said, Well, what? I mean, can we start thinking about uh, economic systems and how this affects people? Like, what about socialism? And my teacher, this was in 2008, 2009, maybe. And I was also taking a class on um, securities regulation at the law school, at Columbia Law School. So, this was all fresh in my, in my mind. I'm like, yeah. capitalism is a failure. Yeah. Like, we keep going through financial these-
0: crisis is like ongoing at that point. Right, like-
1: exactly. Um, So people who were graduating were going to have problems finding a job. It's like, well, can we start thinking about these systemic issues? And the way that she looked at me, she called me over after class and said, you're smarter than this. Like, you're smarter than to bring up, you know, this alternative um, economic system in a class where we're dealing with, you know, social welfare. (laughs) So it just was very very bizarre to me. And it kind of taught me how to, I mean, it didn't change my, you know, um, fundamental outlook on the world, but it definitely like raised my awareness of how these words come across and people just are unfamiliar yeah. with them. Yeah. Um, and so people in the class were like, but well, no, this was like a dirty word at the time. Yeah. So first of all, like, I'm just like hype that it's talked about so openly, yeah. um, and freely now a little bit more than it was 10 years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of why I decided to use the label with all the, baggage and, and faults of labeling yourself it's like to try and uh, diminish some of the stigma around it because like if socialism is this big boogeyman but then the people representing socialism are like Bernie Sanders and like the most popular politician in the country and like Ocasio-Cortez who is like was very popular and her popularity is getting assaulted by Fox News but it's still yeah. like, I think well liked by many people in this country and they go like oh like That doesn't seem that crazy. Like this seems like people who are being honest and have moral clarity and are speaking truth to power and whatever. And like sometimes they're backpedaling and like we can say that Bernie really is talking about social democracy when he's talking about socialism. But if you look at his record and it's like, pre-national yeah, uh, politics he was pretty radical
1: yeah he seemed full commie back in the day I don't know what's going on now <laughs> yeah. but
0: yeah. Eugene V. Debs documentary that he did um, about this. No. He, he did like a spoken word um, <laughs>
1: wait you mean like this the CD that he had I like the so. album yeah, okay, yeah yeah and I
0: think it was about Eugene V. Debs I okay. might be mixing up he two he might have things. like a
1: whole like slew of albums but I definitely heard about one he did like some folk songs anyway it doesn't yeah. matter
0: yeah I mean I think like if you were to talk to Bernie one-on-one and not it would be off the record like he would probably be pretty candid about being like much more radical than he purports to be, but just be like, "Look, well, America is not ready for that. Yeah, you need to like diminish the power of an employer in the you know employer-employee relationship through like single payer. Um, you need to like diminish American imperialism abroad, and to pay for these things, like, like you need to take all these steps. And I think if we were to try and build a socialist utopia, it'd probably start with a lot of the same policies mm-hmm. that Sanders is uh, supporting, right? um so yeah I, the the thing like you're smarter than this that, that really resonated yeah with
1: me. i still remember that i was like what this is it was so bizarre to me i was like i feel like if you are smart then you would know that this is we need an alternative yeah because i mean what people are experiencing right now cannot be cannot be it yeah i mean and if you it's go unsustainable.
0: It's, it's environmentally uh, yeah. you know there will be some kind of major social unrest if like people's lives just keep getting worse as like costs of, you know, housing and healthcare go up.
1: Right. And I think if more people knew just how much more like socialism was in the public consciousness before, you know, the Cold War, then I think, um, some minds will change. I remember doing a piece on kind of, uh, capitalist interests in the publishing industry, Hmm. specifically in, in news with, um, a class I was taking by a professor named Patricia Williams. She's like one of the preeminent scholars on critical race theory. Okay. And a lot of her stuff kind of revolves around the media and how the the media frames things. And so the bottom line is that I was trying to get people to uh, be more socialist. And so I was studying what, how it was discussed in newspapers from like the 1900s to, like, the 1950s. Interesting. So I think at one point, like, maybe 30% of people were socialist. And then when you started to hear oh, more... like, Americans? Yes. Wow. Yes, and 30%. And there was,
0: like, 1,000 like socialists in elected office at, like, 19-something. Right. right. And Eugene B. Debs got, like, 10% of the vote from right. prison.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, and so it was kind of looking at that and then looking at how these, the sort of, um, the... The way that socialism became vilified was through liberal organizations like the New York Times. And, you know, the corporate owners of these magazines and these newspapers were the ones who were creating this sort of, you know, discomfort with with the ideology.
0: That's particularly funny because if you look back like just 100 years ago at New York Times headlines, they will literally say like, negro cocaine fiends like menace nation and like that's like a new york times headline
1: yeah yeah
0: um yeah
1: so when you know some history then it puts things in perspective a little bit more
0: yeah for sure um i think there was a new york magazine article about socialists in brooklyn basically it was like media types and um it got a lot of like blowback on twitter um i read it i found it to be like interesting it was speaking about a world that i'm somewhat familiar with um, mm-hmm. and so i could imagine if you're reading it as like you know, somebody in the rural Midwest, you'd be like this, and a socialist, like this doesn't, you know, speak to my experience at all. Uh, it's very localized. But he was like, you know, he's talking about reasons socialism might not have taken off in the United States. And doesn't mention the fact that like McCarthyism happened and that like, you know, I don't know how many socialists and communists were like in prison for their beliefs. Oh my gosh. And had their entire lives turned upside down. Yeah, like people, were are doxxed essentially. Yeah, um, people
1: conveniently forget that part.
0: Yeah. And it's like, if you don't look at the the backlash and the the real risks that people face for supporting certain ideologies as an explanation for why they're not popular uh you're either just woefully ignorant or you're like making a conscious ideologically driven choice
1: yeah um you know i'm kind of jumping off of that too just speaking of the i guess pervasiveness or the way that you know the, the U.S. like intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies try to stymie these um, these movements. I mean, you can go to Fred Hampton. And, I, I actually
0: wanted to bring him up. Yeah. Uh, that was a beautiful piece you wrote.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Like, so through his organizing work, the Black Panthers were largely targeted because they were building, you know, these. he was targeted especially because he was building these multiracial um, class um, alliances. Somebody like Lorraine Hansburg, like these are... People that we kind of think about in terms of what they contributed to, to black culture, but we often don't talk about what their political affiliations were. Yeah. And Lorraine Hansberry, who was like the first black dramatist on Broadway, she was a communist hmm. who had spies come to her first showing of this. It went, um, I think it premiered in Philadelphia first. And she had spies from the CIA make sure that she wasn't spreading spreading communist propaganda And she identified as a radical. She was a communist journalist who worked for a communist newspaper.
0: Wow. I mean, Martin Luther King is this, you know, lionized figure today with his own day and monument in DC. But it's like a whitewashed version of him. And the reality is like, he was really unpopular at the time of his movement. And when he turned against the Vietnam War in particular, um, a lot of the mainstream supporters he had broke with him and like vilified him. And, um, you know, I think we misremember and like there's a lot of propaganda around like what he would have said or done and and like you've got mm-hmm. republicans invoking his name and image to support all kinds of awful things and right. his speeches are being used for like general motors commercials and it's crazy the Super Bowl. yeah
1: martin Luther king was a staunch anti-capitalist malcolm x identified as a communist
0: well, i don't think anyone's claiming malcolm x on the uh, republican party <laughs>
1: well, well no i just mean in terms of in terms of um kind of our understanding of how common it was to be yeah. anti-capitalist amongst yeah. you know black radical voices or even black voices that we consider a little bit more mainstream.
0: Yeah. Kate, okay, Can you speak about uh, Fred Hampton a little bit for listeners who don't know anything about him?
1: Sure. Fred Hampton was uh, a very young leader of the Black Panther Party, and he became the chair of the Chicago or the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. At 14, he did some organizing with the NAACP, and the FBI opened a file on him at the age of 14 wow. because he was that strong at getting people to join the organization. Um, kind of relating to what I was saying earlier in terms of the proliferation of like our security forces and our intelligence agencies, the NAACP is a mainstream organization, but they were targeted hot, you know, heavily by uh, the U.S. police state. And the attention, you know, got onto a lot of these activists at very young ages. I think he built the NAACP member- membership from like seven to 500 members in less than a year's time.
0: At a, as a 14-year-old? As a 14-year-old.
1: <laughs> it's crazy. What's puts us I know. <laughs> like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> and he applied those same skills to the, um, the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party. And the Black Panther Party... As most listening would probably know that they were, you know, anti-capitalist, Marxist in some ways, a revolutionary black organization who believed in a self-defense. And also, you know, there were some, you know, disparities in terms of what people's ultimate goals were with the Black Panther Party. Somebody like Eldridge Cleaver, for instance, he um, wanted to t- take like revolutionary arms. Yeah. And He was a little bit more problematic. Yeah, a little bit. And Huey Newton, you know, wanted to engage Black people through social services. Like, yes, our aims ultimately has to be like revolution, but how we get there is going to be different.
0: Yeah, it's like free breakfast.
1: The free breakfast program, which inspired the free lunch, the free breakfast program throughout the country, and it inspired federal policy, sickle cell, you know, anemia programs, after school programs. So, really trying to reach the people. And Fred Hampton was known for that in Chicago. So the Rainbow Coalition that we associate with Jesse Jackson when he ran for president is what Fred Hampton actually started. So he had an ability to get people from all over the political spectrum and ideological spectrum. But, you know, people who were working class, basically, um, to come together. And so that made him a target of um, not only the local police forces, but the federal police. And... In 1967, they got an informant to kind of infiltrate his group and assassinated him. Unfortunately, the way that the Black Panther Party is framed right now, it's always as this militant group that like had kind of this equal standing with with the police state. And they were fighting them back and yeah. shooting them back. And you had all these um, like shootouts. But people call that uh, a state assassination, yeah. that it was a shoot in.
0: Yeah. I mean, so, so like the details were like the informant from the FBI drugged mm-hmm. Hampton in his sleep. Yep. And then the Chicago police early in the morning fired close to like a hundred bullets into his apartment. One bullet was fired back by yep. the Panthers. He was still alive, right? And then the Chicago Chicago police like shot him twice in the head, like yeah. lying on his bed in front yes. of like his pregnant girlfriend.
1: Yep. And so the piece... This is, like,
0: documented. Yes, it is. To some people, they'd be like, what? I know. Like, it's
1: crazy. And so the
0: FBI conspired with the Chicago police to assassinate a political opponent um, who is guilty of organizing people for mm-hmm. justice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's America. <laughs> it's always been great, right?
0: And, and you wonder why, you know, some people are upset with the lionization of the FBI and James Comey and, and you know, these institutions that have historically been used to oppress people of color.
1: Yeah. Um, whether it's Martin Luther King or somebody more radical like Fred Hampton.
0: Yeah. Like the FBI tried to get MLK to kill himself. with like a letter that you know, Hoover sent at MLK a letter saying, we're going to release photos of you like cheating on your wife, unless mm-hmm. you like take your own life. And that actually happened. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so Tell pro, um, was, you know, the counterintelligence program was instituted to stymie, you know, black organizing. And these are people just fighting for justice. Yeah. Just regular old rights that y'all said we should have.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's uh, in, in this history, some people will like be like, well, the past was really bad, right? Like they see movies like Selma um, and they go like, oh, that's awful. But like, thank God we're beyond that. Right. Um, and uh, have you seen Black Klansmen? I haven't. Oh, okay. So I I guess not too much of a spoiler, but, you know, it, it's, it's quite good. It's set in the 70s and, like, it really exposes the awfulness of, you know, white nationalism and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it ends with a montage of the Charlottesville um, protests and, like, very graphic footage and yeah. stuff I had not actually seen. And I watched it with my parents and we were all in tears at the end. And mm-hmm. it was, like, a very unsubtle but effective saying, like, hey, this is still happening. Uh, this stuff is not ancient history. And I think... You're not seeing as much not as many claims that like we're in a post-racial society or anything like that with trump in office and he's really illustrated a lot of the still existing racism that's animating a lot of people's decisions and the hate crimes that pop up after his rallies are you know real evidence of that um but yeah i mean what would you say to people who would be okay yeah the fbi was bad in the past but they're okay now or like police like aren't you know consciously trying to assassinate you know political opponents anymore um you know, people who are maybe not as aware of the history or don't see the connection to the present.
1: I mean, what is their what's the ultimate point of that argument, though? I mean, because they're not assassinating people, we don't have issues with America. <laughs> right? <I> <laughs> it's like, OK, sure. Uh, they're not assassinating people. But I mean, that just seems so such a bizarre barometer for yeah. our our value system. I mean, I don't I don't even honestly I don't really know how else to explain that. That's just very bizarre to me. That that would be the the litmus test. That we're no longer assassinating people who are, you know, American citizens who have been doing have not committed any criminal acts.
0: Yeah. I mean, and you tell the story of Fred Hampton Junior, his son. Yeah. And I mean, he spent like how long in prison for
1: I'm not exactly sure. Um, it was like
0: a decade at least, I think.
1: Is that what I said? I think it was like nine years. Sorry, <laughs> I
0: I I've read all this very recently and you wrote it a long time ago. So
1: Yeah, it's been a couple of years. Um I don't remember how long he said his, his term was.
0: I think it was nine years of like an eighteen year sentence. And okay. was, and you had a quote <laughs> um you had a quote of like somebody saying like in the jury it's Fred Hampton. His name's Fred Hampton, like just a in jail already. And this was like not that long ago. Right. And when he was in prison, he was the targeted for assassinations and, um, you know, put into solitary and like, like all these awful things happening. Um, and I think nowadays, if you're a problematic person of color, who's, you know, messing with police, you can just like imprison them and then just cut them off from, you know, access to journalists and communication and all these other things. And like you die a social death rather than like a physical death.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, we still have some of this and we still have some of the same kind of criteria. And I don't think people should rest on the laurel, their laurels when we've got, you know, somebody like Trump who is in office and virtually ignoring, you know, the white domestic terrorist threats that we're yeah. seeing pop up all over the country. This idea of like a black identity extremist is kind of the same um, metric that they were using against, you know, black uh human rights fighters and, and Black freedom fighters in the 60s and the 70s. So the apparatus is still the same. Just because the people have changed, just because we've had a Black president in between doesn't mean that the apparatus is not still set up to be able to target people of color and, and Black people in particular who have been constant um, enemies of the state. One of the things that I just kind of a, a local example, not local to New York, but something that I've been looking into is how this applied in Wisconsin. And looking at those parallels, you had Sheriff David Clark. I think his first name was David. He was the sheriff at around the same time that um, a lot of the Black Lives Matter protesting was going on. And when you layer and kind of unpack the history of police surveillance in Wisconsin, you can see that he was just a part of a longer trend and it's just extended itself. So for instance, the NAACP was a little bit more radical in Wisconsin in like the mid-1960s compared to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. And they had this group called the NAACP Commandos, which was a more militant wing kind of modeled a little bit after the Black Panther Party where when they had protests and marches, they wanted to have like a security unit to make sure that the protesters were going to be okay. The police surveilled them. They uh, were working on a Two hundred nights or two hundred days of marches for fair housing. This is mm-hmm. just housing. This is about you know discrimination and segregation in in Wisconsin. Well, fair housing is just the first step in the domino. You know, <laughs> of course, it. of course, to total dom- world domination. Yeah, yeah. Um, and police surveilled those uh, NAACP commando um, members for like every single day of those marches. These these are folks who are just looking for, you know, a way to be able to to sustain their families and their lives without being subjected to segregated neighborhoods. And police threatened them. They threatened um, them literally with, you know, with shotguns. They killed Black men on a regular basis and called it a justifiable homicide. So none of those things have changed as long as we still have those institutions in place
0: hmm. well, i mean yeah if, if these things were happening in another country especially one that is not a client state of ours you know the united states would be very quick to label these things as like anti-democratic uh you know authoritarian oppressive police state actions mm-hmm. but uh, it happens domestically against you know certain groups of people historically and this is something I, I definitely need to look into in more detail but a lot of the organizers in ferguson um have been killed I like can kind of mysterious circumstances like in the years or died
1: mysteriously or you know yeah
0: and i mean i don't want to get too conspiratorial but it would not surprise me that much if maybe they were not killed by police actions but like if police were not vigilantly looking into the reasons why this happened Mm -hmm. you know i that's i'll try and find some links and put them in the show notes to, to articles about this but it's definitely something that yeah i mean it's It is part and parcel with a history that is, you know, not many people are aware of for a lot of good reasons. Um, But uh, it makes people uncomfortable, I think, to think that their police are capable of that. Yep. Um, So I want this is an awkward transition, but back to 2020. Mm -hmm. There's one candidate that is actually the real front runner, if you ask some people, um, who also has the highest net uh, favorable scores among Black voters, and that's Joe Biden. do you, like, what is your take on Joe Biden's candidacy in his record? And, and, like, why do you think he's so popular?
1: The, my unscientific answer um, is to my take on Joe Biden is that he needs to sit down. <laughs> he seems like... Have, have
0: you seen the, the video of person. him uh telling a person in a wheelchair to stand up so everyone can give the person him a hand? And then he's like, Oh, Frank, oh, I'm so sorry. Everyone stand for Frank and like <laughs> applauds. Yeah, it's it's, it's such the classic a Joe Biden. Joe Biden classic Joe. You know, he really recovered quite well though. Like you can see everyone why he's still up for Joe. Yeah, yeah.
1: or whatever Frank or whatever. <laughs> um oh my gosh. There's so much that I could say about Joe Biden. And I think people, unfortunately, have a lot of amnesia. Yeah. They may not realize that he was the architect behind the uh, crime bill or what we, you know, colloquially call the crime bill. 1994. Violence. Yeah. It's Act, a, something I can't remember all the The crime words. bill. Yeah. The crime bill. Um, <laughs> like
0: Added three strike laws and trying children as adults and removing Pell Grants for prisoners and like a whole host of other awful things. Like yes. Expanding jails and prisons, militarizing police.
1: So. Yep. And making it you know more feasible for um, private prisons to proliferate. They basically just expounded upon a bill that California had with mm-hmm. their crime bill. So this was just a federal version of that. And he considered himself the architect of this. He called himself like Mr. Crime Bill. So yeah. he touted yeah. this. He... Obviously, like, we've seen his record with with women in terms of um, how he has – I'm sorry, I'm going to have to <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, smelling women's hair and, like, uh, yeah. shoulder rubbing and – yeah.
1: I mean, yes. And like, then just politically, how he threw Anita oh, Hill Anita under Hill. the bus. Yeah, I think
0: that's much more substantive. <laughs> right.
1: So not a strong record when it comes to sexual harassment or yeah. you know sexual issues in the workplace. I mean, it's just it's a whole it's a whole litany of things. His centrism, the way that he has triangulated. I wouldn't even say he's triangulated. He has appealed like directly to the white conservative base of the Democratic Party. And white conservatives, you know, who are in the Republican Party. So he is not a—he should not be a friend of anybody who believes in any sort of progressive politics. I think that he remains to be popular simply because he was Barack Obama's vice president. Yeah. They associate him as, you know, with Barack as Uncle Joe. And I think the more that we look into his record and the more it's talked about, the more folks will recognize that he's not a strong contender.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's— Kind of amazing because I, I saw him speak in 2016 uh, in Philadelphia, and I kind of knew him as like the guy who did dumb things and said funny things by accident, uh, yeah. who was standing behind Obama when important things happened, and the Onion version of him, which is hysterical, which is like you know Joe Biden wakes up in like uh, ice bath in D.C. with a new scar, saying like not again. <laughs> And, you know, it's just like a funny guy, like, you know, this like goofy old, old man, but you look at his record and it is just so bad. Like in addition to everything you mentioned, um, pretty much every vote that could have gone in favor of big corporations and against like regular people, Joe Biden was there. And if not voting for it, was like a, a co-sponsor of the bill. I mean, he's from Delaware, which is like a state of corporations and banks and that's um, carried water for him his entire career. Uh, the things he said recently, like having no empathy for millennials, uh, it's just terrible politics and like yeah. just wrong and, and dumb <laughs> and I, it's just kind of astonishing. I, I mean, the reality is most voters are exceptionally low information and name recognition is like a huge explaini- explainer for popularity and most people aren't that ideological. So like Joe Biden's supporters, their number two choice is Bernie and vice versa which probably speaks more to their like overall popularity than anything else. Yeah, but like, I think so. If you think of people as like ideological, you know, rational voters. It'd be like Bernie, Warren, like Mike Revell or Tulsi Gabbard or like, you know, somebody who's more left. Um, But that's just not how voters seem to be thinking about it.
1: All right. And I think it'll shake itself out more, you know, when we get to debates and we get to kind of these campaign choices. um, Because I think some people might have said that about Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. You know, you see these two, you know, kind of well-dressed and put-together guys, like in the Midwest, for instance. And then when you start hearing, you know, you start seeing the campaign ads and the information that they're digging up about, um, you know, about each other, there are so many people that surprised me in the Midwest, because I was doing some campaigning for Barack in 2012 in Ohio, who did not know the extent of you know Mitt Romney's like corporate greed and mm. like what he was doing with the bank capital so I think it will shake itself out once you you know we start getting to the weeds of it but this is very you know it's still very early. early yeah like, yeah has it, like- has it ever been this early before people are having all these I'm gonna be tired I'm gonna be tired like by July I'm sure
0: I honestly don't think I follow it that much but then I talked to you know, normal people. And I know way more because just like my not following it is like actually listening to like five podcasts a week on the topic (laughs) and then reading articles. And yeah, Twitter alone is like, you're just getting a fire hose of, you know, little things that may be important, but probably nobody will remember in five years.
1: Yeah. I don't think, I don't, I don't think Biden's going to go anywhere. Honestly, I hope not.
0: You know, it's like, there was this uh, meme of, uh, I think it was like candidates, and then like leftists with Twitter, like with like chairs, like hitting them in like a wrestling ring um, or leftists with Google. Um, and just kind of showing that like, there's so much dirt. It's so easy to find this stuff on people. Um, and you can just like go into somebody's memoir or like old videos and just find Joe Biden saying something like terrible, like 25 years ago. Yeah. He, like on the floor of the Senate. Like, oh,
1: oh yeah. He's, there's
0: just so much dirt.
1: He, he, in fighting for the crime bill, He said something about this just blew my mind. I was like, did he really just say that? He said something to the effect of you guys, you know, might want to string them up and hang them from a tree, but we're not doing that. Oh, my God. He like
0: his compromise position is to not lynch people.
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Jesus Christ.
1: And this is what he's talking about with, you know, a bill that's associated with, you know, the incarceration of, of black men and this. This is what this is the rhetoric that he uses. Oh yeah,
0: he also like the eulogized f- Strom Thurmond. Uh, like famous of anti- he did. Of course you know, he integrationist. Did. <laughs> Yeah. I mean I hope uh, Oh my god. <laughs> if it's if it's Joe Biden versus Trump, like that would be
1: Oh hell. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I I really don't think it'll happen, but like if you were to take a naive view, like oh, Joe Biden is that. like the front runner in most polls. Um, but You know, because like whenever people are like, oh, like Bernie is not going to win, I'd be like, well, look at the polling. Like he's outraising everybody. He's the number one guy. But then Biden would like actually usurp that. But I think, yeah, just people don't know um, nearly as much about his record, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, of the people who are being polled, then yes, they would support Joe Biden. But are you getting people who don't plan on voting involved in these polls at all? Yeah. Like I think far fewer people are willing to say that they are not going to go vote. Yeah. But I think we're going to see the same sort of disengagement that we had in 2016 and 2020 if he's the nominee.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This a poll just released, I think, yesterday from Bernie's campaign. So take it with a grain of salt. But it was Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and showed Bernie like leading by double digits in, in all three states against Trump. Uh, didn't show any other candidates. But given that Bernie's polling the best of the declared Democratic not- uh, candidates so far, I'd imagine that's actually like the best you'll see. Um, and... You know, some people will say, like, Bernie hasn't been, like, subject to the onslaught that is going to come in a general election. But I think that's pretty encouraging that three states that Trump won and, like, hadn't been won by a Republican in, you know, decades. Mm-hmm. Um Bernie is, like, leading by double di- digits, which is what really matters come 2020.
1: Right. And I think it's, it should also be pointed out and their team should hone in on the fact that that's where he got his highest black support. You know, it wasn't yeah. that... Great, but compared, relatively speaking, compared to to the rest of the country, it's like
0: much, much stronger. Right. It
1: averaged at about 30 percent in those three states. And then when you add up some of the other swing states in the Midwest, it was at 30 percent compared to like 10 percent throughout Mm. the rest of the other um, like major states in the Democratic primary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. And um, I look forward to seeing more of your writing. And I think you're adding a really valuable voice to the conversation.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This has been The Most Interesting People I Know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.